Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/achieve today. Your son is going to get to the age of 30 <laughs> and reach like gastronomical on we nothing nothing face ah oh, nothing new in the world oh. <laughs> eating a like beating heart of a snake just to get a thrill out of food just for it to taste that's okay. yeah, he's just going to be drinking sparkling water yeah <laughs> flushing his toilet with sparkling water Hello and welcome to Why Aren't You a Doctor Yet? The only podcast that uses cutting-edge science to answer the questions that you actually have. Things like what's up with trees? Why is the sky blue? And could avocado toast be used as like a building block to create houses to solve the millennial crisis because two birds one stone, right? I think so. I mean, if you're going to eat the avocados, you might as well build houses out of it, right? I'm your host Alex Lafridge, I'm a PhD student in computational biology, a comedian and Honestly, I'm really bad at self-care. Just I need to take better care of myself. That's awful. I know. On my left, as always, I have Oz Ismail. Oz is a PhD student in neuroimaging and dementia, a Tinder aficionado, and someone that doesn't eat breakfast. Look, man, I don't have time for things like breakfast is admin to me. On my right, as always, I have Sahel Patel. Sahel is an amazing creative journalist. He makes brilliant videos for the BBC and he loves all foods. I also love all foods and I was also late. This was recorded afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, please use the first take for mine because I feel like I did badly on this. <laughs> so, today we are super lucky. We have an amazing guest with us. Um Usually I get really angry when someone comes into the studio flexing on me, uh coming in like looking better than me, but today I don't mind because we have the most amazing man. He's a scientist, a chef. He uh, you're a scientist. As far as I'm concerned, you're a scientist, okay? I'll He, take that. Yeah, I'll take what I can get. Look. <laughs> I the words I cannot describe. We've got Joseph Yusuf. Please introduce yourself, man. Well, I'm the founder and chef patron of Kitchen Theory. We uh, are a kind of experience design studio focused on gastronomy and food and um, really understanding uh, the sensory aspects of it and how you, how, you know, what's a, what's a meal other than just kind of, you know, satiating a primal urge to eat? What more can it be to us? How can we kind of elevate these experiences in some way? And, and, and having an understanding of kind of science and the psychology of dining. I'm a chef by trade and, and um, have worked here in London as a chef for many years. Um, been lucky enough to work at some of the kind of top Michelin star and, and, and five star hotels here. 
And about 10 years ago, I'd set up Kitchen Theory, which was kind of an online resource to kind of share ideas about uh, gastronomy and food and everything that I was learning on my journey. And then about um, just under 10 years ago, I met Professor Charles Spence, who's an Oxford University experimental psychologist. I was kind of mind blown by some of the research. He's worked with your Heston Blumenthal's, Fran Adria's, some of the top uh, chefs in the world. Um, and once I heard about some of his work and research, I got to know him um, for the last uh, kind of since then, we've been working on uh, kind of research together, really having an understanding of the sensory relationship that people have with food. So, um, you know, we are sensory beings as humans and food is probably one of the most multi-sensory um, activities that we engage in on a daily basis. So having an understanding of that relationship that we have with food helps us to curate more kind of meaningful and more exciting, more interesting uh, dining experiences. Wow. And that's me going, oh, I didn't have breakfast today. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, let's work it out because both of you don't have, you don't eat breakfast. Right? No, I don't, no. As exactly. I said, I, I, I find the idea that people can go from, you know, six or eight hours of slumber and immediately just kind of wake up and go into a meal. My body doesn't work like that. That's insane. I mean, I, it's like a doctor saying that he smokes 50 cigarettes a day. Many of them do. <laughs> <laughs> so... What have you guys been up to this week, Oz? So I've been packing to move. I know I've said this about five episodes ago that I'm moving away. So I've been doing that. Dope. Joseph, what have you been up to this week, man? Prepare to be jealous. I've been working on a project where by the end of August, we're flying over to the Maldives to host a multi-sensory dining experience that's being held in a resort there in collaboration with this really cool Singaporean artist called Z To. And uh, yeah. That, that's that been kind of my week. <laughs> Get out. Go. No. And we're done. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> Holy shit, what the fuck? This has been my new doctor yet. Goodbye. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. When, we come, when it comes to sort of food and the senses, there's so much there, isn't it? Like breaking that down is insane because not it's not just taste it's touch it's 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 all of these things yeah i mean the the best way of kind of putting this in a kind of elevator pitch way is that flavor is a construct of our mind rather than being a sensory perception in our mouth and although we kind of localize the perception of flavor into our mouths and that's where we sense it that's where we kind of relate to it actually if you think about everything from the expectations the um uh enjoyment the satiety uh the judgments and everything that we make about food all that really resides in the mind and so when you're um designing any kind of food experience and i'm not just talking about food experiences in restaurants you could apply these same kind of ideas to schools hospitals care homes once you have an understanding of how people relate to food on a sensory level and how the sensory kind of stimulus and environment around them affects their enjoyment satiety uh, um and the experience that they have with food, then you can try and um, use that to design and curate more uh, meaningful and better uh, food experiences. So whether that's trying to kind of nudge people towards eating healthier, whether it's trying to nudge them towards eating more sustainably, or whether it's about curating environments where perhaps people, uh, like just very quickly, we did some research with a school and one of the interesting things was they said, oh, well, do you want to, well, while we were doing the research, um, they said, well, do you want to come and see the canteen? And we were like, yeah, sure. I'd love to see the kids kind of in their natural um, uh, kind of eating environment. 
And honestly, we walked into this place and two things stood out. Number one, the noise level was crazy. And it's just not the right, in fact, you wouldn't want to eat in such a noisy environment. And they actually have to remove some children from the dining hall because they just get too overstimulated by the, the kind of energy in there. Second thing is it smells of fried food and ass. So, um, you know, just wrong, wrong. And, and then you say you have kids that kind of don't, don't eat well and some kids go to have their main meal at school. So, you know, it's just about kind of understanding how we can um, get a better understanding of how people perceive flavor and taste and how they enjoy food, understanding that relationship and then building better food experiences. Because like you use the term food experiences, but... I mean, that sounds super, super clinical, but like, oh, not clinical. It sounds like quite pretentious and stuff. But what you're really talking about there is every time we interact with food, right? Yeah. I guess like, so what I'm thinking is in terms of breaking it down to like the different like senses, right? Yeah. When you look at food, we live in this culture, it's very Instagram culture. Like <laughs> everything we eat is on Instagram. Um, and... I like I know a lot of people hate this this idea that you have to make your food look good and it has to be instagrammable but I always he, think about he's rolling his eyes <laughs> <laughs> I genuinely thought you were about to go blind yeah <laughs> <laughs> but like I, I I understand why that's like a really annoying culture but at the same time it reminds me of something uh that uh, my mom said to me when I was like so my mom taught me how to cook right mm. and for me like I get really annoyed when people don't have a good relationship with food because I appreciate food. I like exploring food, learning about new foods and it's not just fuel for me, yeah. right? Um, it is an experience. So I, I have had friends who, past tense had, <laughs> who, who used to see food as like put everything in a pot, like boil it and eat it because it's just fuel and I hate that. But one thing my mum used to say to me when she used to teach me how to cook was your eyes have to eat before like you know your your mouth and that's 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 i agree with that like i think you know you have what you what you eat has to look good before you kind of rip into it so in, when i look at it that way i just think i can kind of see why people want to make their food instagrammable sure what, what what's your take on that yeah no sure i mean it, it, that, that that's an important so couple of things there number one i think almost every culture around the world has this kind of notion of you eat first with your eyes and that mm. was i think apicius a first century roman gourmand who was kind of you know the quote yeah is quoted as having said that so no there's even the idea of kind of visual dominance in terms of you know when it comes to a sensory level of yes of course our eyes give us so much information about the food they're about to eat they set so many expectations and we make so many judgments based on what we see that that's extremely important when it comes to food as well for even kind of confirmation of expectation and so on. Um, so no visual, you know, what, what, what we see and chefs, you know, you are plating in all sorts of kind of interesting ways and presenting their food in all sorts of kind of visually engaging ways. And that's an extremely important part of it. But um, I guess where you probably have an issue with which is similar to me is that can't be the only element of it it needs right. to be more than just exactly. aesthetic right yeah. so it needs to look brilliant mm. and beautiful and kind of pleasant to the eye but it also needs to kind of back that up with tasting 
as good as it looks. Right, kind exactly. Of thing. Yeah. And um, the kind of work that I guess we're interested or that we are kind of engaged in is looking at how something like, you know, your, your, the, the visual aspects of the food, how that as a kind of sensory modality, if you tweak or change the colors, shapes, textures of foods, how that kind of uh, augments people's perception of uh, flavor in some ways. So I know there's a lot to do with color itself and how people expect things sort of to taste it's interesting that color seems to be uh you know one of these really important elements of um the expectation that we have when it comes to the foods that we're eating and when you look at say we've done some uh research where we were looking at the basic tastes and how they correlate to color. So we kind of went around all over the world asking people, do colors have taste? Do tastes have colors? And it seems like a very abstract kind of question or notion, but in a forced choice situation where they have four edible elements, one is green, black, red, white. And if you ask people to order those colors, or if you ask them to assign a basic taste of sweet, sour, salty, bitter, Mm. um, there isn't a right or wrong answer to that. Um, You've got kind of green, black, red, white and you've got sweet uh bitter salty sour and you've got to kind of correlate or uh, um connect them there is no right or wrong answer depending on your background your culture every holiday you've been on every food that you've eaten uh the the foods that you like and dislike we will all have our own kind of um uh, kind of correlation but what's interesting is when we went around the world doing this we found about 70 to 75 percent of the world's population will all go with the same correlation of white being salty black being bitter green being sour and red being sweet and even if you think well that doesn't exactly match up with what i think But what's interesting is most people can kind of understand where those representations come from. So white being salty, maybe because salt is generally kind of like the uh, white is the color of salt. Black, uh, blackish brown, if you think kind of coffee, tea, dark chocolate, burnt charred foods have a bitterness to them. Green being sour, if you think of lime sour candy, or there's even an innate part of the, uh, there's even a hypothesis, sorry, that it could be a more innate part of the brain that thinks of unripe fruits being green and sour, red fruits being, re- you know, red and sweet. And so, you know, these kind of, it's interesting to see that although as human beings, we all live in our own separate taste worlds, that we can share certain kind of sensory um, uh, connections or, or, or correlations. Do you, do you think though, like, so, cause food, food has always had science attached to it, right? The process of making it, um, growing it, like everything, um, like digesting it. But do you think people's relationship with food and the link to science is changing given like things like Instagram culture, things like MasterChef and Bake Off where they, they do put a lot of emphasis on the science. I mean, a lot of the time it's like liquid nitrogen again, but do you think people, people's perception of like the science behind food is changing in any way? No, I think the general kind of mainstream is more, as you said, kind of the kind of, uh, let's say the molecular gastronomy movement, mm-hmm. which is, you know, the molecular gastronomy is really about just having a, f- understanding of the fundamental principles of the science that goes on in the kitchen so it's boiling an egg or or roasting a leg of lamb or whatever it's just about understanding the science that's going on in those um kind of when you're doing those little experiments right in your kitchen essentially i mean that's what you're doing um 
but the what's gone mainstream is just that kind of very showmanship top level kind of um yeah liquid nitrogen right. and, and and spherification and um what's spherification where you take sodium alginate and calcium uh well any type well you calcium gluconate or lactate or whatever it may be and um the so you enrich let's say well there's lots of different ways of doing it but basically it's an interaction with them where they they form a gel and you can encapsulate liquids within that gel membrane. Oh, well, like little bits of caviar. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, yeah. So that's, yeah, they call it caviar or, or yeah, spherification or whatever wow. it may be. So you could put like anything in there. Anything. And I take it that's quite old hat. Oh, it, yeah, it is. But you know what's interesting is I was at, um, in, in a kind of sign chef science kind of conference in Copenhagen a few weeks ago. Harvard University do the kind of cooking and science program. It's it's awesome. They have uh, all the top chefs going there to talk and they have a lot of online resources and stuff. It's amazing. Okay. Um, anyway, so they were there. They were one of the co-hosts um, with the guys from the Nordic Food Lab. And what was interesting was someone actually asked the question. They said, oh, well, do you have to change the course content as kind of, uh, you know, culinary techniques um, kind of move forward and trends move on? And um, what was interesting is they said, oh, yeah, you know, we used to have a unit on spherification, but, you know, we don't do that anymore because, you know, I guess it's kind of not as, uh, I don't know, in vogue as it was. And then so, you know, me, red rag to a bull, my hand shot up. And the point was, yeah, but if you're saying that spherification, which was only really developed as a culinary technique about 20 years ago, it existed in pharmaceuticals before that, but in, in the culinary world, we've only had it for 20 years. And yet fermentation which is, you know, goes back to, uh, as, uh, as far back as man does. That's the new stuff that everyone wants to be studying. That's the cool hip stuff. I mean, how can you, how can you talk about uh, any culinary technique being old school when we've been roasting, boiling and, uh, you know, barbecuing for all of humanity? But, you know, certification is old hat. <laughs> People often ask what makes Chaotic Adequate different from the other live play RPG podcasts available on the fabulous internet. Well, other podcasts are heartbreakingly without actual scholar of horror, Amanda DeJoy. We're not prisoners, we're your You're daughter. all prisoners. No, no, no. <laughs> I want to speak to the top priest. I want to speak to the manager. <laughs> they sorely lack comedian and actor Angus Dunnigan. She's uh, me, by the way. I say to this dragon, hello, are you the homeowner? <laughs> The dragon looks almost offended that you would imply that he was renting. And uh, other podcasts are tragically bereft of the scientist, comedian, and semi-professional troll, Steve Cross. Oh, I love Chagrin you... Battlefounder, come to rescue you. Do you want to roll for potential seduction? Crucially, though, most D&D podcasts have a writer, creator, and dungeon master who's actually played the game before. We, conversely, have Gregory Aikman. There's about 18 different possible quest lines you're going to take and, <laughs> and, and you invented a new one. New episodes each week, new characters to meet, slash accidentally murder, and always new things to get a bit wrong. Join us in the world of chaotic adequate. It's, it's very silly. Yeah, every single one of our senses plays a role um, in how we kind of, you know, paint this rich sensory picture of food in our mind. So texture, both in, you know, texture is obviously, you know, anyone who says texture in food isn't important, get them to blend their next meal and, and drink it through a straw. So I've been doing that a little bit, you know, he Soylent, Huel. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
No, no, no. You don't eat breakfast. You don't get to come to me and be like, oh. Yeah, I know. But that's that's kind of meal replacement that is just like, um, yeah, okay, you're getting the nutrients you need. So no, it's kind of good for you. But Mike, you talk about you were just saying that you don't see food as fuel. No, no, you, no, no. And no, now no, you no, eat no. fuel. No, 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 no. Okay, 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 okay. This is only for times when I don't have anything in the house. Okay. And <laughs> it's, only for, it's only for times... When How often is that? <laughs> Come on, Alex. Is this a breakfast, lunch, and dinner thing? Where's your shake? Get it out. <laughs> okay, look, it's maybe once once a week, if that. And it's only because, you know, I'm going to the gym now. It doesn't look that way, but I'm trying to get swole. Listen, you look pretty, you look pretty hench to me, thank bro. You, thank you. It's a yeah. skinny fit top. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so glad the podcast is an audio medium. Seth, I'm <laughs> shaming me for wearing not skinny shorts look shorts are different top like i go hard on chest day leg day no you should wear a bikini no i got slut shamed <laughs> by alex lapbridge no listeners. no you didn't look but that's once a week and that's just for extra calories i don't do it every day but yes it's depression in a fucking jar or shake tin it's and not you normal. drink it out of a jar no <laughs> <laughs> to top it all off <laughs> no uh, that's no. very hipster like of you no i refuse sitting on a toilet <laughs> Drinking it out of a jar. <laughs> Who brought in the toilet? I'm not well, because every you kind of feel that all kind of like trendy, I don't know, uh, cocktail bars have you sitting on some kind of weird non-seat and they're, they're all trying to be themed in some weird way and you end up paying 12 quid for a jam jar cocktail sitting on a toilet or something. I, I really like a chef coming in saying how angry he is at all these, all these hipster things. Uh, I guess they're trying to create a positive environment for the people that find that positive <laughs> but um yeah i mean look think about it like this you could go if you're hungry you can go to any kind of one of your local you go to some local italian grab a good bite to eat may you know taste great you may have good company around you the the environment may be really nice but if you just take that same meal and serve it on top of a crane at a table that's kind of dangling over las vegas have you seen those kind of dine in the sky no. concepts no what the fuck is that yeah yeah where you have a table that's kind of hung onto a crane and it's all kind of very well set up it's not like you're dangling by the the, the you know um but you know you're in harnesses you're at a table it's all very well dressed there's you know about i don't know 15 20 other people that sounds like hell yeah like <laughs> i think you're glossing you're glossing over the major point of you're dangling over yeah, like las vegas <laughs> or singapore dubai they've done them all over it's the world terrifying. no 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 no. why is this old, why are you saying it like it's the weather report <laughs> this is a that's a very scary thing okay. but the idea with it is that uh that same meal um wouldn't the the, the all of a sudden you've turned that into a life experience and it's that kind of um the 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 meal itself can stay as being exactly the same but it's where you present that meal how you do it that really kind of we we were talking here earlier about kind of emotional engagement and about kind of this idea of memories and emotions and we're living in this kind of experience economy now where people are not necessarily going out and buying products and services they're and the utility behind those like you know if you think of i don't know getting a uh, getting a cab if you're kind of you know out in the street on a hot day trying to hail one down and then you you know have to negotiate a little bit on where you're going through the window you jump in you're holding up traffic and it's a bit of a kind of shit experience and you then you know you have to negotiate with a driver as to where you're going versus when you just kind of pick up your uh, phone 
get an Uber, gives you an alert when it's out one minute before, jump in the car, they maybe open the door for you, puts on your Spotify playlist, asks you, confirms where you're going and then takes off. It's just a much more fluid experience. The utility of taking a cab ride, of getting you from A to B has remained exactly the same, but the way in which you experience it has completely transformed. And it's the same in every experience in life and particularly with food. Mm. Okay, okay, two things. No, two things. <laughs> First of all, my Uber experience is never that great. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> like, like, what Ubers are you taking? <laughs> okay, we should note, people, for the podcast being an audio medium, as I mentioned, Joseph is the lightest one here. So that might be something to do with because my man, I do not have great Uber experience. <laughs> all, right. all right, just today, the guy looked at me, did a UE, right? <laughs> and he was like, oh, I couldn't find you, probably you saw me. <laughs> You're getting four stars. <laughs> but the other thing I was going to say was, so, okay, what's your take on... Uh, ex- I feel like sometimes these experiences can take away from the food, right? Because mm. for me, the food is the the main event. And anything that distracts me from it, I, I'm not there for that. So what, what's your take on experiences like dining in the dark, where, like, you are in pitch black and they put the food in front of you and you're just eating based on smell texture and you know the the, the other senses mm. what's your take on that um it's interesting because even through kind of research you find and anecdotally i can tell you from a lot of people that i know to have been to experiences like that people generally will say that was interesting but i wouldn't necessarily go back right and uh i think the point is we so our take because it's interesting that you mentioned that because i feel like i'm forever explaining to people this idea that i'm not a food designer i'm not a food artist i'm a chef and we curate experiences around heightening your appreciation of the food that we put down in front of you and we want you to be mindful over the textures the sounds the smells the visuals of everything of the food i completely agree with you that even when i hear about multi-sensory dining events your skin kind of crawls a little bit because you think in most cases it tends to be a great show and a great experience but the food is in some way disjointed a little bit or doesn't quite you know isn't you know it's not about the food it's about the experience and you're right and i think anyone who's going to be successful at this uh kind of curating these kind of experiences needs to remember that the the food element um everything needs to be built around that and it needs to enhance the food and needs to draw people's attention and draw them deeper into the food and the enjoyment of it with their senses not distract them with a bit of a circus with some average food Mm. that's like I find that really interesting Mm. because you're talking about dining in the dark, taking away a sense. And like Sahel, you were, you know, ill a few weeks back, bunged up nose and stuff. And you eating food, you were like, I can't taste any of this. What's going on? So Mm. like when it comes to removing these senses, like Mm. you talk about removing a sight, but like smell, that plays a massive role in it as well. So like Mm. how are you guys or with your work at Kitchen Theory, like have you looked into how sort of smell plays a role in people's um food experiences and how have you sort of tweaked that and how have you played around with that yeah of course um you know it's kind of the research estimates that anywhere up to maybe 80 percent of what we perceive as flavor comes from our sense of smell and we've all really well that's interesting yeah well let's say I would I would say that that maybe is applicable in terms of from the chemical senses and chemical senses I mean your sense of taste and smell but in terms of does it account for 80% of your overall perception of flavor I don't think if you're counting all the other senses. Do you know what I find interesting is that you know if it's like anything that like, you know you could say cooking or being a chef is an art form um and you know like if I was to paint a picture 
one person might like it one person might not what what i find interesting is how you can make an experience good for everyone does that make sense or like how can you make a something taste excellent for everyone for every particular occasion if that makes sense mm. fat sugar and salt no yeah. uh, but <laughs> the, the key stuff. that's one of my favorite things <laughs> that's that's what all the that's what all the big food understood a long time ago but uh no you're you're completely mm. right and what's interesting about this is so we do lots of kind of tests with people like um you know you'll you'll find that you know you have super tasters medium tasters non-tasters around the world about 25 percent of the world's population are kind of non-tasters 25 percent of the world's population so what's are, that mean non-taster uh just their propensity to kind of um in the in the test that we're doing kind of be able to discern the bitter taste of a chemical called prop that's on these little taste strips um and you'll find that roughly about 25 percent of the world's population are super tasters 25 percent are non-tasters and then 50 percent are kind of medium tasters where you know they're somewhere they, they you know their sensitivity towards that chemical is uh there but not too pronounced what's interesting about this isn't so much whether people are super tasters or not because some people h- hate hearing they're non-tasters but actually i mean <laughs> super tasters maybe a bit pickier with what they eat and non-tasters a bit more adventurous dial up the spice a little bit more so it's not all kind of you know mm. but what's interesting about that is coming back to your point mm. is this idea that although physiologically and psychologically we all perceive flavor in our own ways mm. so Physiologically, based on your age, your saliva, the pH of your saliva, based on your physiology, your nutritional needs and requirements, you're going to perceive flavor and crave different things than I am. Psychologically, based on every ho- the, the culture you've been brought up in, every uh, f- holiday you've been on, the foods that you like and dislike, all of this will shape your enjoyment of foods and will mean that there's a difference between the two of us. So if we eat a Tesco tomato, which are quite abysmal, um wow <laughs> wow tesco com- going hard tesco i, I mean we were looking for the tesco sponsorship that's that's out the window wow okay uh, oh, well let's let's change it to Just, if you if you have a supermarket tomato mm. which tend to be pretty tasteless in the uk uh and you and i were to <laughs> eat them yeah. if i've grown up eating that my whole life i may think well that it may be from you know a certain super uh, a supermarket's finest or luxury brand end of their tomatoes i may think that's amazing mm. uh but if you've just come back from south of italy and somewhere like puglia and had some wonderful tomato salads you're not going to rate that tomato in the same way that i am yeah and so physiologically psychologically we all perceive flavor in our own ways yet you're right we mm. seem to want to cater to everyone in broad brushstrokes in a way how do you how do you get that subjectivity in there like when you're creating food how do you take that into account yeah because you create experiences mm. for everyone like you're mm. in so kitchen theory um you're in london right yeah middle of london where can we find you or in high barnet so not middle of london we're a bit outside i like being a little bit outside of it all i i kind of hide away in our it's an old victorian factory and we're on the third floor so i'm kind of hidden away in this artist studio and you have you get people up there for like dinner sessions and stuff and these sort of experiences so you're catering for you know people who are in London. So that's you know massive cultural differences and stuff. And you're you're saying that mm. if people have different experiences with food, primarily based on culture and sort of these other factors, how how do you find a, a middle of the ground, or do you just say actually we're not going to go for the middle of the road? We're going to go for something wildly different in our own experience. What we're doing would be really kind of classified as. Um experimental experiential kind of dining so a lot of the people that are coming to this kind of experience are very open-minded let's put it that way that's that's a 
starting point. Second of all, we curate the menu based on, um, you know, as you do, I was having a conversation with someone about this a couple of days ago, and it's this idea that you wouldn't rock up to a two or three Michelin star or even one Michelin star restaurant and ask for the salt, really. You kind of expect when you go to these places that, you know, you're putting your hand, you're putting yourself in the chef's hands and that they know what they're talking about. And that that's why you're paying that kind of price. That's why this chef has the accolades that they have, because, you know, and you want to experience what they um, are, are serving. And I guess same with what we're uh, when we, cre- you know, create a menu and an experience for people. We want everyone to really enjoy it. But it is. Um, at the same time, when you're doing something like, you know, 10, 13, 14, 20 courses, you're not expecting everyone to love every course. And what you want is to take people on this emotional journey that we were kind of, you know, talking about, which is you want them to feel, you want them to really love some courses. You want them not to hate courses, but maybe be challenged by certain ingredients. So we have something like, let's say, jellyfish on the menu. What? Yeah. Mm. Have you guys ever eaten jellyfish? It's just a blob of... Blobbiness. There's nothing. It's nothing Coming in from it. From a scientist, that's. Uh, it's hey a man, blo- I don't study jellyfish. I study brains. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, brains are pretty blobby. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but there's like you know, there's fat. There's texture to it. You know? Like we said, there's the sweet, the sour, the sweet saltiness. Jellyfish fat. is just Fine. a blob. Yeah. Literally. <laughs> what about you, man? Have you, have you eaten any- I've eaten about seven times today, mate. But you haven't eaten jellyfish. <laughs> no, no, jellyfish? Uh, no. I've never eaten jellyfish. I wouldn't mind trying it if you pulled out some jelly. I had jelly deals like a couple months ago, and that don't was... think that's the same. That's not that's pretty gross. But I ate it. <laughs> well, well, jellyfish aren't uh, they're they're ungross at all. I mean, they they they. Okay, so it's um, you know probably one of the few seafoods we know that we've overfished the seas, right? And you know we know that there's a big problem with uh, sustainability when it comes to our seas and oceans. And jellyfish is probably one of the only uh, or one of the few foods that we could actually take out of the sea that would have a net positive effect on the environment. And it's because they're pricks. Yeah, basically, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're saying that jellyfish are the future. (laughs) Basically, to eat jellyfish. Jellyfish, Well, they're uh, growing in numbers exponentially, yeah. (laughs) The way you said that was like the start of a disaster film. (laughs) Jellyfish are growing in numbers exponentially. Yeah, they are. Their their biomass outnumbers other species in certain parts of the world's oceans now, and they are very invasive, and they do things like they've raided salmon farms and killed off the stock there. They, you know, that are out at sea, they've uh, taken down a, a power station they disrupted a US <laughs> naval base jellyfish so, are insane yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you don't want to mess with them eat them we're just gonna eat them all man <laughs> for a thing that both looks like and can be taken down by a plastic bag <laughs> I mean true. criminals of the sea <laughs> wow so okay so the sustainability point is very interesting right because uh, a lot of a lot of large numbers of people are turning to vegeta- vegetarianism veganism Flexitarianism. Oh, don't say it like that. I would consider myself a flexitarian. Look I at mean, that. Look at that. I just like I've been mocked. I, <laughs> mocked. I, the reason I said it that way is because, like, it's a thing that I feel like I've been doing for a long time without yeah, a yeah, word sure. for it. Yeah, okay. yeah. But, pe- like, so a large numbers of people are driven to do this because they, they, they care about the fact that. You know, it's it's not sustainable to keep eating animals at the rate that we are. Okay, what is flexitarianism first and foremost? Uh, <laughs> it's basically now. It's go, it's, go on, Sal. Well, from my understanding, it's someone who eats less meat 
um, and takes more vegetarian or vegan options, doesn't it? When when they're like at a restaurant, for example. Right, exactly. So yeah. they they will choose to. Some people are very like almost religious about it, where they will say, "Okay, just at, on Saturdays I'll eat meat, or for dinner on X number of nights I'll eat meat, but the rest of the time my protein will not be from a meat source." So, do you think that's also changing? people's uh perception on what food is rather than just going it's fuel i need to eat x amount of protein blah 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 yeah per meal. but let's be honest that is the case but only with a certain demographic like mm. you know if we're looking at you know uk globally you know a bigger picture no yeah. but if we're looking at kind of yes your kind of uh people living in london yeah. if you're looking at certain kind of demographic yes and that yeah. that is becoming much more but you know when people are talking about oh there are so many people turning to veganism now and mm. as a percentage of what right. population i mean and it's also, still you know it gets a lot of it's very um you know it gets a lot of media attention a lot of chefs now are kind of you know taking on board these messages and trying to and i think that's the thing is a lot of chefs really are trying so Okay, without saying where I was working, when I first started out as a chef. So you were working <laughs> at a Michelin star restaurant in London, let's okay. say. And um, this was, you know, years and years and years ago. And I remember um, you could have a vegetarian and they say, oh, there's a vegetarian in. And I remember, that, you know, uh, serving a soup that had maybe a chicken stock base wasn't <laughs> considered um, as kind of incorrect as it would be now. Let's oh put it God. that way. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's just you in the back. Yeah. I'm just like, no, no, the entire yeah. scene <laughs> is chicken broth. Yeah, and uh, that surprised me at the time. I couldn't kind of get my head around that, uh, that it seemed kind of, uh, you know, there's a bit of flexibility in, uh, in, in how they chose to under... Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. stand vegetarian because well it's a mushroom soup yeah but it's got chicken stock in it yeah but it's a mushroom soup was kind of the <laughs> but how long ago was that uh say 15 years ago wow. yeah so it has been a huge change in culture around you know veganism and vegetarianism um it has become a lot more mainstream but yeah i think you're right in the sense that it's still got a long way to go before it reaches kind of um 
what you could say is like because it's mainly young women who are vegans um from the data it looks yeah. like um and yeah. but also i think i mean like the 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 Mm. the data behind why people are turning to veganism vegetarianism you know you can't it's undeniable that it, you know you you can't we can't keep eating meat at the rate that we are mm. but at the same time not everybody can it it is a sort of a, at, at this point in time a lifestyle that not everybody can afford yeah because vegan foods can be quite expensive so it's not it's not for everyone right well i mean it's for certain audience a certain demographic at the moment and that is reflected in the price and who's marketed to you know like veggie prep and stuff like that the research itself uh has far broader implications in terms of understanding how to essentially understand people's relationship with food and understand that you know if we want to introduce things like let's say jellyfish if we want to introduce ingredients like insects and i'm not necessarily saying these are the foods that you know people should be eating but they are interesting options uh and i think that a lot of what puts people off it off these foods now isn't so much the flavor because they've never tried them isn't the textures the smell the whatever it may be it is the association that they have with these ingredients and so when i was in mexico and i said uh some chefs over there hey i'm going to be putting insects on our menu in london they kind of looked at me very nonchalantly as if i was doing that there was nothing interesting about that whatsoever mm. and my point to them was yeah but you know imagine if i cooked you a korean dog stew and they said yeah but dog's not food and I said, well, yeah, but that's the point, isn't it? It's just how we kind of perceive it and how we, re you know, relate to it. So if through having a good understanding of people's relationship, sensory relationship with food, surely there that must open up opportunities to um, designing uh, foods, foods and food experiences that engage or uh, that give people that nudge, encourage them in some way to kind of eat more sustainably. But, you know, as I said, I'm a chef and it always will come down to giving people food that they enjoy, that tastes good, that is flavorful. So guys, you know, recently in Europe, they found an Iceman, Odzil the Iceman, and they found the contents of his stomach. So they, uh, they've been able to get an idea of this guy who died 5,100 years ago, Whoa. like over 5,000 years ago. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. And they've just worked out what he ate for his last I can meal. Guess what my chicken nuggets no <laughs> so they've just worked out that in his last meal he ate like a combination of um like sort of different meats so they had like one of the main things like elk meat and stuff oh yeah and they did it's really interesting they did it through um like dna testing so they dna tested the contents of his stomach to find out that you know there was this this meat to find out what meat was inside his stomach mm. did and they find any semen in there or no, they didn't. <laughs> it's like that South Park. No, yeah. they didn't. And Sorry, that's a very obscure <laughs> reference. <laughs> it sounded like it was just crass, but it's actually a pop culture reference. I mean, I'm just, I'm too classy for this shit. So I'm not saying anything. So guys, that leads me to sort of wonder, what would you guys have as your last meal? God, that's so hard because I love so much food. I know this straight away. Okay, you go first. Let me Listen, think about it. I would eat a potato waffle with dirty piece of cheese on it and one fried egg that's disgusting <laughs> that is disgusting that is the greatest thing you can ever eat i've tried multiple it's cuisines really not. i've eaten fucking lobster at the ritz i haven't and then <laughs> all right i've eaten fried chicken burgers and that is the greatest thing i've ever eaten absolutely that is not that's disgusting <laughs> that is gross please don't ever do with that with maple syrup on top I mean, that, that i can get on board with it <laughs> 
Mine would have to just be the highlights of all my favorite foods if I was told I had one last meal. That sounds horrible. Wait, so you're going to blend all of your... I'm not going to blend it. I'm going to ask for multiple courses. <laughs> what, you want a 20 course? That's like one? when you have like one wish and you're like, oh, I'll have like 20 wishes. <laughs> <laughs> you can't do that. That's, that's me. Game. When it comes to food, that's me. I'm just like, I want a little bit of everything that I love. I feel as though that's cheating. That is cheating. All right, fine. Just six chicken wings from KFC. Um, that's that's what I'm gonna do. And you're making fun of my waffle. Your waffle is with cheese and egg and maybe yeah, potato, potato, savory. What you're not talking about? Is that those waffles you could? Yeah, put in, I you ate them at uni. No one eats them now. All right, listen. Let's I, move on. I I think I'd eat um, sort of rice or fufu, which is um like a carne and dumpling type thing explaining fufu to you, people who don't know what fufu is really difficult mm. um but with um peanut soup like groundnut soup and like i've always loved peanut yeah. anything and yeah. so peanut soup is like my favorite thing Ooh, soup. that sounds actually really nice i think that would yeah. be my last hey, meal you've got your potato waffle listen i'm a simple man with simple needs <laughs> and one of them is <laughs> what is it potato waffle <laughs> cheese and an egg on top dairy leaves sliced no, cheese i'll tell you what i, I want right <laughs> In, in in you know like different parts of the world kfc's have like different types of like they cater for the local cuisine yes i'm a kfc expert yes um in sri lanka they have a kfc biryani <laughs> that is what i want oh I damn want kfc biryani damn fried chicken and rice it's fucking delicious <laughs> yeah so that you so okay so you're saying kfc biryani yeah you're saying i'm say a waffle potato waffle yeah and i'm going with you know my culture's cuisine i think that's that my work. culture's cuisine as well what, cu- what culture <laughs> is potato waffle with egg peasants <laughs> we're gonna have so many people being like one we stand to hell two fucks to hell why is he taking the piss out of my culture <laughs> okay uh back to the podcast all right so let's think about this right if you want to let's take the situation where we want to eat sustainably you want to have these good sensory experiences but if we're moving towards not eating not eating sort of conventional meats that we eat if you had the choice right Mm. and this is for everyone if you had the choice between eating lab grown meat yeah versus insects yeah which one would you choose both (laughs) <laughs> are you hungry can i get you some food i'm always hungry that's not even up for debate <laughs> you would eat in- insect joseph please arbitrate on this mm. yeah um i mean we had about 400 kids at the science museum eating grasshopper brownies and they were absolutely loving it believe me if it's packaged in the right way if i gave you a nice slice of brownie or whatever your favorite dessert is and if part of the the flour or you know made to you uh, used to make it was coming from insects look at some point actually it was it was easier to get the kids eating it than it was adults adults had a bit much bigger kind of obviously mental hurdle to overcome yeah. most kids once they saw brownie were just willing to eat it and then mm. they felt a sense of accomplishment of hey i've eaten insects and you can kind of take it from there my son's eaten that and will now eat things like you know kind of pasta that has been made up with i think 20 30 percent insect flour in it and stuff like that and he's yeah. quite happy for him it's quite normal that he eats jellyfish and insects yeah no, it's just I, what you're brought up around yeah. right no, Oz, are you saying that you wouldn't eat insects i just i don't mm. know what it is about ins- i just don't want to eat insects i'd rather just you know not eat any meat What's, at all so you'd mm. rather so you wouldn't eat lab-grown meat 
I need the lab grow meat over over insects, but also like lab grow meat isn't exactly it's not as vegetarian as it sounds because you still have to use animal protein to feed the culture to actually start it off because they take they take cells from an animal um cells that are similar to stem cells that can be made to differentiate into like muscle or connective tissue yeah. or fat yeah like that's the i mean it's that's the idea of it right so it still needs animal protein to feed the culture mm. so it's mm. not really going to be like veggie meat how know? much though like what how much so let's say if i was going to make a burger right like <laughs> So Hale is currently miming out what a burger is. So I'm this big, this tall. So I know what a tall. burger is, but that's not a burger. This, yeah, and very dense as well. No, um, but like, yeah, I mean, like that, that's really interesting. I didn't know that because when I think of lab meat, I think that is an ethical way to eat meat of the future. But you're saying, you know, it does. I mean, it's it's mm. like so the 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 whole news around it is like that. It's 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 packaged as it's going to be the future of meat, but really, no one really even knows, as far as I'm aware like what the environmental impact of growing that meat in a lab is so we don't know we can't say that it's better than you know eating x number of cows when we see the experiments of people making growing lab meat it's it's still in a development stage but i guarantee you there will come a time where it will be like packaged nicely and like you see these like vegan meat options and how sophisticated they're getting um and that will happen over time, I think, with lab-grown meat as well. Mm. It's just, yeah, it's just insane because I feel as though that's a, like a massive barrier to people taking it up because it's like, oh, we've got all this food that we've had thousands of years perfecting, <clears throat> but now we're trying to bring something new. Oh, mm. it's mm. not as great. I'm like, yeah, because you're not giving it the time of day. You aren't yeah. trying to make it as good. You're not, you know, putting it on MasterChef. You're not making it part of popular discourse. You're making mm. it a science thing. Mm. You're making insects a clinical science. Yeah. Thing. It's that that's that's the that's the bridge to gap in it is to make it like a business and to make it commercial that people buy it and you know they incentivize these companies to do that. So that is a hurdle to jump on its own, I guess, isn't it? Well one thing I got so I was asked about this whole mm. kind of lab meat thing and what I thought about it um it was a few weeks ago and I kind of, I guess my approach to it is this. My first response was you're probably asking someone from the wrong generation. And that's not because I'm so old, but it's just, I've been brought up kind of with this idea of, I want my meat coming from a cow that's kind of lived on green pastures and I don't know, maybe massaged and fed beer. You know how they do with Kobe beef and, Mm. you know, you, but you've got this romanticized idea of kind of like what good, good quality beef should be. Your Ubers and your beef suppliers are just <laughs> insane. Yeah, I was going to say, man, like, I will be ha- like, look, my local kebab shop, I don't ask questions. <laughs> like, give me the kebab. Yeah. Like- I've, I've been going to Boss Man for a while. He says, hey, Dr. Alex, I'm like, yes, please give me indeterminate meat and some halloumi. I'll be really annoyed if the halloumi isn't real, but the meat, I don't care what it is. <laughs> that, so- that's another thing. That's a good point because, you know, we're here talking about like sensory experiences and stuff. Um, and then, you know, at the same time, you know, there's millions of people who are happy like eating a fried chicken burger, you know, for like two pound. It's like, how do you make that accessible? And also the issue is how do you stop sounding, you know, maybe like a bit pretentious with this experience and stuff? How do you engage those type of people? Because you're like mm. quite good with that. Because like you said, you, know, you went into schools and saw where these kids were eating and realized mm. that the entire environment was wank. You didn't do that Jamie Oliver thing of coming in and saying, ah, oh, you're shit. Uh, <laughs> we're going to ban chicken dippers. Ah, fuck Listen, you. He got rich off that shit. So. Yo, he, also, <laughs> he, <worked with> <laughs> he also got rich by making jollof rice badly. 
Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, this is some yeah. controversy no, right no, here. Okay. So, side note. Yeah. yeah. In about three, three years ago, he did a recipe for jollof rice. It was Jamie's twist on jollof rice. Yeah. Okay. I've I have no idea what cultural appropriation is. I rarely use that term because I feel as though give and take is you know required, mm. and it's only in certain situations where there's a balance of power. Yeah. You know when you take people's braids and you love the hairstyle but you wouldn't hire a black woman with braids like that's cultural appropriation i understand yeah, yeah. there's balance of power okay jamie oliver is a colonist what do you, what do you he's a colonizer that's cultural oh Look, my he, God. he took the rice yeah he called it jollof rice it was not even paella it was poor okay yeah, yeah. It was, it's the only thing that has brought together the entirety of the west african diaspora was this a thing yeah, did yeah, people yeah, get upset yeah, about this west african twitter went wild is this like the master chef thing with that dude with, with the rendang yeah yeah, yeah. that shit was yeah. That exactly shit so <laughs> yeah 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 so so yeah no it's the only thing that's brought nigeria togo senegal ghana like mm. guinea ev- all these people together in mm. just blasting this one chef mm. so people have all these feelings about food so like you're saying mm. a chicken burger you know yeah it's like people yeah i mean like you know you're talking about cultural stuff for a lot of people that is their culture isn't yeah. it it's like cheap well you could say cheap accessible food but it's like how do you well, bring cheap. them up it's mm. cheap and convenient yeah and uh price and convenience mm. seem to be two of the main drivers especially because we're you know we're in london and mm. a lot of what you're talking about like let's say chicken shops and stuff like that you know for some people they find it cheaper and more convenient to feed their family off a you know a bucket of chicken or fry uh, yeah. uh, you know or getting picking the kids up something from uh you know fast food place on after school uh, but that's that's again. It still does come back to this idea of kind of behavioural change mm. and education, adults, the kids. I mean, um, but, but to what extent is like using the language of like? And you've already acknowledged this, like sensory experience of food. How, to what extent is that alienating those type of people? Is like how do you make that accessible to them? And that's not a question, you know, that's a question difficult one to answer, I'd say. Yeah, it is. Mm. I guess the way we've tried to kind of use this in a positive way is mm. by going into schools and looking at things like um, food neophobia in children and the, the fact that they're uh, a lot of kids. So when we went, we, we worked on some research with about 100 children, 50 in a control group and 50 that were in our cooking group. I like that you get to go into schools and you're like, control group. I don't even get yeah. to work with animals. <laughs> I wish I had someone. I'm so lonely. <laughs> and you rock up into a school like, all right, kids. Well, no, it it, it takes a lot of planning, actually, to get that kind of thing done. But yeah, we finally got into a school uh, in, in North London that we were working with. And um, what was interesting is some of the, the 50 children that we worked with, let's say out of the 50, only about uh, two could identify a raw beetroot. Really? The rest had absolutely yeah. no idea. Whereas that number rocketed up to about half of them when it was the beetroot that's packaged in those kind of like plastic, fac- mm. packed, kind of sealed packaging. Um, a huge number of them couldn't uh, or had never tried things like courgette and didn't know what a courgette was. The closest thing they had was cucumber that they didn't really know, you know. Mm. Right, how old were these kids? Uh, six. Okay. Yeah. I wouldn't know what a beetroot looked like and I genuinely wouldn't Really? Know. Yeah, no, a six. Yeah, yeah, mm. completely. I would know what like okra looks like okra like because we, okay. we eat a lot of them in the soups i i could tell you what like lots of different meats look like like mm. goat chicken mm. lamb like i can tell you what they look like. i can tell you a lot of west african stuff but like 
beetroot and mm. courgette like mm. when i grew up like we weren't eating those sorts of things yeah, more, sure. yeah. more sort of Ghanaian food yeah. yeah so there is a cultural aspect and there's yeah. also yeah there's, there's, there's there is that barrier saying isn't it people children well, from a young age isn't it yeah. yeah well the thing is a lot of the so we tried to pick foods that we went into the school with that were just what you would find in your average supermarket so you know we just took a kind of random selection of ingredients and took it to them now what was interesting is any processed kind of foods kids could immediately identify so everything from your kind of juices um snacks and stuff like that they could immediately identify it by brand as well <laughs> whereas when it came to um fruits and vegetables you know even things like spinach and stuff like that no idea in many that cases. is really interesting yeah. so what was interesting though was a lot of these kids because they couldn't identify them some of them had when you kind of explain what they are you know, a small number of them had tried these ingredients before, but weren't didn't know them in their raw form. But, mm. you know, so what's interesting is children knew. So mo children didn't know what chickpeas were, but they know what hummus was. Mm. Wow. So that kind of thing where they know the processed form of the food, but they don't know the raw form. Yeah. So and they don't know that hummus is made of chick or they, they, they may kind of have been told that, but they don't know what a chickpea is. Yeah. But if like they see one, they can't identify it. Mm. Like, I get that, but they're six, you know? Like, mm. they're six. I didn't know. I knew what custard mm. and jumping were. Those mm. are the two things I knew. Sure. Six. But maybe well, that's I think the point. It's also, yeah, it's, it's also like, because, um, like, what you're saying is your relationship with food starts at such a young age, right? So, if, like, if you're, if you're talking to your kids about the food and what's in it, then maybe they would know. And, like, like examples, like, when I was a kid, okay, I used to genuinely think, so I used to watch uh, Popeye, and I thought eating spinach would give me massive arms. And my mom was like, yeah, definitely eat spinach. And I used to love spinach. Mm. But then she also did this thing where she thought it'd be hilarious, right? When she, like, she was, she was, she had prawns once. And yeah. she was like, and I said, oh, what, what are these things? And, I, and she was like, oh, that's, they're the cockroaches of the sea. Yeah. Mm. And I used yeah. to hate cockroaches. I was a clean freak from a young age. Yeah. And I, I believed her and I didn't eat prawns for so long. Mm. Wow. Because children are impressionable, aren't they? And I think yeah. the point is, is like, you know, how, where do you create that relationship with food? It's like, at what age do you start teaching kids about what, what how foods are made and what yeah. the Yeah, and you see, now we're in an age where there's more and more convenience food, so children aren't even being exposed to, because you're saying that you could identify okra and a few, okay, but at least you could identify, you know, because you saw your mother cooking, mm. you saw her using raw ingredients. Mm. That's how I grew up, was seeing my mother, my grandmother cooking with raw ingredients. But nowadays, it's about opening a pack of pasta, opening a jar of sauce and putting some, I don't know, kind of pre-coated fillets in the oven or frying them or doing something like that there is no you know people the degrees of separation between us and our sources of food are only kind of increasing and growing and kids aren't you know so a lot of the kids going back to this kind of research hadn't tried these ingredients but just getting them kind of engaged with so on a kind of playing with the ingredients getting them familiar with the ingredients on a sensorial kind of a sensorial level um getting that what does the ingredient taste like what does it smell like what does it sound like what when you kind of rip it and shred it what does it feel like and it's just giving them that familiarity with food that hopefully you know the idea would be that you would um allow them to overcome this kind of neophobia that they have with food this because they feel that they can't identify 
or they don't know what because a lot of processed food if you don't know what's in there if you're a child you you i mean it's easily to it's easy to be off put by something when you don't know what it is if you see yeah. a, even if you see a pea for the first time right this little ground sphere that's sitting on your plate that we tell kids don't play with your food but actually you want them to play with your food with their food you want them to squish it they want to know what it does like they want to know yeah. what it does so it, when they put it in their mouth that they have a bit of an expectation yeah. and it's just allowing exposing them to foods and um it's that promoting yeah. curios- curiosity about what they're eating isn't it in a way i i, mean, I yeah. completely agree because like again like my i i believe that my relationship with food is the way it is because my my parents encouraged me to have this good relationship with food like for example my dad he cooks a lot as well and he used to take me like on fridays he'd take me to the market and we'd go and buy like if we buy a massive fish and he'd like we'd clean the fish together like we'd cut it open together like that i think that's genuinely what mm. made me so curious about my food and mm. i have this re- relationship with food that's that i don't see it as just fuel and i don't just see it as a thing i just need to eat and just be done with it yeah, yeah. like similarly i remember my parents going to billingsgate fish market like super early in the morning like like three to it like two three in the morning that's the only time it's open yeah, yeah. like it's, i didn't even know like so for yeah. a long time i thought shops were like open all the time because like, they go to these markets and they come back with like m- massive fish you know they put it in the freezer like properly mm. store it you know they you can get tilapia there so you know, they'd miss that in ghana so they're like oh you know get tilapia and crabs live crabs and my dad loves live crabs so you come back so my son look what i have got <laughs> i'm like what's in there i'm like why is the bag moving <laughs> and this crab just comes out and just scuttles along the floor <laughs> and that's an amazing bit of like home for them that's ghana yeah. and that's replicated in a house in south london mm. and from seeing that and realizing that food is quite a a real process mm. it's not like you said you know mm. processed slabs of meat it comes from somewhere that for me really set it in my mind like knowing what's in food understanding it so much to a point now that when it comes to explaining to people how to make foods i'm almost very bad at it yeah because like you know it's like if you're good at driving you don't really explain it you can't explain how to drive Mm. and Mm. i can't explain like oh you add a certain amount of food you add a certain ingredient in there you add like a handful yes instinct and i think my parents doing that at such a young age having me play with my food made me realize oh if i take this out if i add some more flour to this if i do whatever Mm. like the how texture changes how taste changes listen you've ever since i've known you've had a real interest in food and you know and it's interesting to hear you say that that it came from your family and your upbringing um do you know we've been tough on kids as well in a way um because you know we're talking about kids eating processed foods and not being aware of that process but there is and you know talking about veganism there is kind of a move towards understanding nutrition of food and like you know eating well like there is that movement isn't there within a small mm. demographic though it's yeah. not the people who need it most the yeah. problems that we have with childhood obesity and diabetes mm. and other kind of issues related to diet in this country they're not the ones that are that's not that unfortunately mm. like even things like the sugar tax and stuff like that it's all aiming at the not you know it, it's all beneficial but i don't yeah. think it's necessarily aiming at the um the people who need it and you know it's funny you Most, say that yeah. i used to be obese once upon a time what do you mean, used to i am a fat bastard oh. all right 
<laughs> a BMI is okay now, right? It's uh, within a reasonable amount. But the point is, is, I didn't know about food. I didn't know about... Alex is funny. It's really funny. Man. Burn. Oh my God, burn. Alex. <laughs> I mean, burn it's some calories. <laughs> After burn. I called you hench, bro. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is not... Where's his give and take that I set, I, I, I set him up. It's okay. <laughs> I forgive you. It's for take... the purposes of comedy. It's acceptable. <laughs> needs to take some food listen i used to be a fat bastard right and i didn't know about food and you know it's interesting because i used to think stuff like oh bread is okay but like you know meat isn't for example and it's just like those little bits of knowledge that you need to give kids at a young age and teach them about um you know what is good for you what is nutritious and you know what goes into your food right like we were discussing but i also think Mm. like so like nutrition is an interesting one because Mm. sometimes like it takes I would say a bad term, like movements like the clean eating movement, right? People like, again, it's part of the Instagram culture and people, everyone wants to like, a few years ago, everyone was like, oh, we all got to eat clean. But what does mm. that, mm. like I bought into it for a while, but then mm. I was like, what does this actually really mean? Yeah. It doesn't, it's not really about nutrition. Mm. Well, once, can I, because we kind of jumped on from lab meat, but mm. there's one important thing kind of about this, which I think is interesting is lab you know if we if we kind of think about the future of this if you could i think future generations may look back at kind of what we do now and how we consume meat as being massively barbaric the fact that we have this kind of dominion over animals the way we treat them the way we get our dairy products the way we get our meat the way we i think future generations will look at this and just kind of think ah that was barbaric i can't believe that people would kind of you know and the idea of that I can order my meat and it comes from a company that is, is kind of lab grown, but it comes from a company that I have 100% traceability of the source of the meat and where it's coming from, which traceability of food and food fraud and all that is becoming such a big issue that that, you know, number one, and because of allergens and dietary requirements, stuff like that. So having that traceability point there. And the second thing is you could probably, I'm sure if you were growing lab grown meat, be able to uh, tailor it probably in to some degree or another to the nutritional requirements of your family. So this idea that actually I can order meat that I have 100% traceability on where it's coming from. It's not being done in an inhumane kind of way. It's sterile. It's clean. It's kind of, you know, it, 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 it's, you know, uh, uh, meets all those kind of requirements. And it can be tailored to the nutritional requirements of my family. Mm. I mean, that is pretty cool <laughs> that's very interesting so yeah. Oz, would you eat lab-grown meat i said i'd eat lab-grown meat from the start <laughs> okay so insects still not sold on the insects okay I mean, okay fine yeah. <laughs> don't judge me <laughs> so in the future where do you think food is sort of going uh, that's too broad of a question. It's almost impossible to answer because we don't know with technology and what's kind of coming up. But I guess in terms of restaurants and fine dining and that kind of scene, it'll be going more and more towards, I think, you know, the celebrity chef will die out <clears throat> and you'll get more of this. Uh, the intensity in your eyes, like, I will kill <laughs> Yeah, no, 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 no. I think, no, no, no. I just think it's more an element of, you know, 100 years ago, no one gave a who who the... 
um so who the chef was it was your maitre d who hired the chef and told him what to cook and then you, the maitre d went out and tossed the caesar salad or made your beef tartare or flambéed the the crepes suzette or whatever it is for you and they were the star of the show and now fast forward to 2018 there's open kitchens and people want to sit at the chef's table and understand the chef's philosophy and blah blah, blah. and i think as we kind of go forward it'll be more about these kind of more cross-disciplinary uh kind of collaborations between the chef and the scientist or chefs and designers and architects and people like that that will curate more uh kind of food experience or experiences generally that revolve around uh, that involve or have at the heart of them the food but it will be about that kind of uh, broader experience and then i think that'll trickle down to everything as it always kind of does uh, turn to the different levels um but yeah, I, I think it's it's we're definitely going more and more towards even when you look at kind of someone mentioned Pret and stuff like that, you know, um, these kind of places, you know, spend a lot of time thinking about the kind of in-store experience and how they engage with people while they're in store. And yeah. it's changing so much because of technology now that somewhere like McDonald's, um, you know, McDonald's used to have to deal with long queues and that was one of their big uh, kind of priorities was how do we make sure that we're getting people moving through the queue quick quick enough now with online ordering and click and collect and just being able to kind of go up to a, a, a console and type in your order now their biggest priority is how do we engage people while they wait for their food because there's no longer people waiting in a queue now it's just people hanging around aimlessly kind of looking at this board waiting for their number to come up so what do we do with people so we no longer need ro space for queues we now need areas for people to hang out in while they wait for their food so yeah. it's just changes at every level yeah no, it's, Wait, it's, it's evolution isn't it of the experience with the dining experience guys is this why mcdonald's have like tablets they have games tablets yeah now. they do yeah, yeah is that it yeah That's, partially wow yeah, just to keep you preoccupied it's like we're like child children <laughs> no, no no it's true but like i walk into my mcdonald's i'm like oh it's changed they've got a touch screen they've got some tablets you know to play i'm like oh that's fun you know whatever oh this is new and swanky but you're telling me that that's these are all well thought out ideas that you know mm. people have taken time to go right our, our priorities are now shifted this is what we do to get maximum partially because if you're well, it doesn't matter whether you're an adult or a kid i mean i've i've uh, so i check this out and it wasn't a swanky hotel before you get kind of you know it was actually a very kind of normal hotel <laughs> I, like, I was in a hotel because you're gonna blame it on the type of hotel that i stay at but it's not so i was in uh, a holiday inn in amsterdam and uh crazy <laughs> crazy um, i'm glad you know where that is okay. so i was in a holiday inn in amsterdam and you know kind of gone are the days where you have like you know crap piped elevator music they had a tablet built into the kind of mirror where you could play angry birds so going up to whatever floor it was i would just sit there and have a couple of goes of angry birds you know my son plays it i'm familiar with the game while i'm in the lift it keeps me entertained and occupied playing angry birds you know a couple of rounds of it much more than let's say listening to crap dull elevator music so you know um yeah i mean these things it's it's any 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 experience can be elevated in some way if you, you know, and especially with food. Yeah. I like that you got a lift pun in there. It's nice. <laughs> but fuck, that's, 
honestly, like the world is moving towards these things and the behavioral mm. changes and mm. sort of curating, I think curating, but like changing how we interact with our environment. And that's... Mm. that's it worries mm. me though. It worries me that we need, we have this need to be engaged and entertained all the time. Mm. But it's we really worrying. But mm. we don't notice it. We don't yeah. notice it. So guys, in the future, do you think that you will start changing how you eat? I mean... I mean, I'm not going to eat insects, <laughs> not anytime soon. So, Hale, do you think you're going to like change your eating habits? Well, you know, I, I've seen it in my own life already, so I, I, don't, I don't see why I wouldn't change my eating habits as, you know, as we progress the technology and availability of different types of food, I definitely will. Oz, do you think you're going to like ever try new things, you know, okay. your insects? All right, I will try new things, but don't give me any anything that's related to a snail please <laughs> okay in ghana we eat snails so that is a great gross wow um well kind of racist like a lot a lot of no no wait a lot of a lot of different cuisines have snails all of those cuisines are gross <laughs> because they have snails in them well if sri lankan food sri lankan food does not have snails if sri lankan food was good enough i'd know the intricate ingredients that you have and i'd roast one of them but i don't because it's fresh <laughs> Joseph Sri Lankan food is awesome by the way <laughs> don't 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 make him feel like thank you no 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 it, it, yeah. I, mean, I mean have you had Ghanaian food no and I think that's one of, a problem in London isn't it is there's a huge underrepresentation of any form of good African food <laughs> let Not... ask Alex to take you to the, to a dodgy part of London where you can get we went up to um no, I actually, if there is, then I'd like to go, yeah, genuinely. Yeah. So, um, Islington, um, we went up there. There was a, we walked in and we were like, is, is this open? I was ready to go in. Alex is like, no, no, we can't go in. We no, can't no, go in. Basically, the woman was Indian. I was like, we're not in the right place. And I saw a, a, like an, a Ghanaian woman sort of walking in the back, just sort of not doing her job. And I was like, this is the place. <laughs> <laughs> the service is poor. <laughs> the food is going to be great. We walked in, they were like, I was like, oh, can I have some plantain and beans? I like, guess very good. And, oh, can I get a board? They're like, we're out of eggs. I'm like, what do you mean you're out of eggs? <laughs> I understood when they were out of the specific Ghanaian Fanta that you ordered, because that's a very specific product, but eggs, yeah, out come of on. Ghana Fanta, Mirinda, and a boiled egg. I was like, I will go across the road and get you an egg. <laughs> it's like, please. <laughs> but in any case, Oz, we're going to get you trying new foods. Yeah. Joseph, have you enjoyed being on our podcast? Not at all. <laughs> Heartbroken. <laughs> we gave no, you no, I have, Well, no, I, I mean, I've invited you up to our studio. So, no, yeah, for sure. we got to do a part two of this. We've got to make this happen. We've got to make this okay, happen. Let's do it. Right, let's we're going to yeah. take Oz. We're going to take Sahel. It's going to be No, great. it'd be great because I think as well, I can honestly give you an idea on some of the kind of, um, uh, kind of more... Uh, interesting kind of flavor experiences and maybe kind of looking at how the science kind of works to turn them into positive experiences, let's say. As long as there's food involved, I'll be there. Awesome. There we go. <laughs> so we've reached the end of the podcast. As always, I've been joined by Oz and Sahel. What's up? See you later. And thank you so much, Joseph. Pleasure's all mine. Thank you for having me. I've been Alex Lathbridge and this has been Why Aren't You a Doctor Yet? Bye. So you might be thinking, oh my god, how do I hear more about this podcast that combines science, tech, popular culture and comedy so effortlessly? Or you might be thinking, oh wow, these guys are geniuses and I have questions only they can answer. Or you might be thinking, oh my god, these hosts aren't even real doctors and I know more science than them and I want them to know this. How do I let them know this as quickly as possible? 
Well, what you can do is subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and all other podcasting apps. And I know you hear it everywhere, but a comment on Apple Podcasts really, really helps. You can email us your questions, comments, news stories, or just say hey at whynotadoc at gmail.com. And you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at whynotadoc if you want to keep up to date with what we're doing or be pedantic. We'll see you next episode. 